So, uh, somewhat of a side note, this will be the last Sunday, at least for a while, that I will have a beard, or that you'll have to see me wearing a beard. Uh, it, this was grown for marathon training purposes, and I will be shaving it sometime before I see you again, either in victory or in sackcloth and ash that I was picked up by the street sweeper. I really don't know which end of the spectrum I'll be on, to be honest with you. It's a total guess for me tomorrow, but um, either which way the beard will be coming off. So just a heads up on that. Um, Some people have been asking me, uh, what was the choice in the facial hair? That's the choice. So it ends tomorrow, either in victory or defeat. So today, as we come to the text, um, we arrive at another challenging portion of Genesis. We've been in this section for a little bit of time now. And uh, partly because as you, as a a student and someone reading through the book of Genesis, you get to chapter 6 and you see uh, there are a number of things here that are intriguing to say the least. Um, And so now we, we need to pause here just for a moment to consider the text that is before us in terms of what we just had read to us or as we have read in the book of Genesis before. You notice we were just told in the reading that God is grieved. And what's of interest for us this afternoon for a few moments is that he is grieved over his own creative actions. That's an, an important piece for us. Because again, we are also told that he is so grieved and that he is so moved that he has regret. Or some translations, um, uh, English translations, translate the term to repent. What's important for us is understanding that the text is clearly seeming to state to us that he repents of what? He repents of himself, his own creative activity. Now, if we were reading with our eyes open and our ears open as well, we would have our attention, to say the least, drawn to that. As classical theists, that is, I assume that charitably of you, and you can assume that charitably of me, that is, those who adhere to the summary teachings of the church Catholic regarding theology, that is, regarding theism, who the God of Holy Scripture is, to those of us who say, I assent to the faithful summaries of the church's dogmatics regarding who God is, disclosed to us in Scripture. I am Catholic. I am Orthodox Christian. And when you come across a text like this, indeed, as a classical theist, your ears are perked up. It gets our attention. Not to mention, if we move beyond just a a, a Catholicity among us, of we're we're, we're Catholic in our, our, our origin of theism. We agree with the church Catholic. But further, if we, if we take the, uh, the, uh, the, the spiral and we begin from Catholic Christianity, we begin narrowing it by degree. As we come down, we would perhaps narrow it to mention as Reformed believers who would or perhaps even do, some of us here, confess the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms. To those of us who do, the Westminster Shorter Catechism states it this way, and it will be of importance to you. It says this, quote, God, in its definition of God, what we teach our children to memorize, 
What do we teach the children in the classrooms in the back while you're here, your little ones that come to us and we minister and serve them the word of truth? What is it that we teach them about God? Who is the God that is calling upon them? He is spirit, the shorter catechism says. He is infinite. He is eternal. And he is unchangeable. It goes on to describe what is unchangeable in God. He is unchangeable in his being, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and truth. What we need to consider then is this a faithful summary of who God is based upon the text of Scripture. Is God, I'm presenting to you, if we were to read Genesis 6, is God unchangeable? And is that what we have here in Genesis 6? Is God unchangeable in his being, in his will, and in his actions? Now, what I want to do in order to answer this question about God's what we call immutability, that is that God is unchangeable. What I want to do is I want to give you a cursory treatment of Scripture in a summary form. So, so we'll just consider the idea that, that God is unchangeable in his being, in his willing, in his actions. He is unchangeable. That is immutable in his essence. And then is this, we're asking, is this what Scripture in summary form would teach us? If we were to say, we start with this premise that, that, that the church has delivered to us this understanding of God. This is the God that we've confessed uh, and because it's a faithful summary of Scripture's holistic teaching. And then, so I want to show, is, is that grounded? And, and so give you a few texts. And, and then we'll take this summary and we'll apply it to Genesis 6 in a faithful treatment of Genesis 6 that was just read for you a moment ago. I won't read all of the texts, but I do want to read one for you, and then I'll give you the the summary of a a handful more. If you have a text of Scripture with you, turn to Exodus 3. Just briefly, again, we're, we're in pursuit of a faithful definition, a faithful understanding, because we're considering, is God here filled with repentance? Is he filled with regret regarding his own creative actions when he looks upon man? Is this text teaching us that God indeed repents, he does regret, and he is changeable? It would be my argument, and that of classical um, theism, that he does not change. How do we get there? Beginning in Exodus 3. If you look at Exodus 3, and we'll begin verse 13, I'll read 13 through 15, and we'll just see this one text, and then I'll give you a summary of a handful more. But beginning here, right after Genesis, here is an important text for us to consider as we think on the immutability or the changelessness of God. Verse 13, then Moses uh, said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I 
am has sent me to you. Now, carefully consider verse 15. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers. So so the identity of who he is, who I, I am, I am, is the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. Say this to the people. Say this to them. This is my name. For how long? Forever. And then there's implications to that. The fact that he is, and that he is, is his name forever. There's implications. And they are, thus, I am to be remembered. For how long? Throughout all generations. You see, if we were just, just to begin here, in this simple text of, of self Identity. That is, he, he establishes himself to Moses and to all of his covenant people. That is all in here who profess faith that terminates on Jesus Christ as Lord. That, that is the terminal point of your faith. It, it, it goes unto him as a vessel and it rests solely and squarely, exclusively upon him. To you, his covenant people, he identifies himself as I am forever to you. That is my name. That is, he teaches us here in Exodus 3 that he is and that he remains forever who he is. That's important when we begin to describe being. If I were to give you another text of which I will, Numbers 23, 19, if we were to move, again, I'm, I, what I'm asking is this a, a faithful summary, the, the, uh, a classical definition of God as infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Numbers 23, 19. Therein, if you were at that text, and we don't have time to turn to each one, but if we were there at that text, you can look at it now if you wish, or or if I could give you a faithful and fair treatment. That is, he declares himself to be not human. The implication of his not being a creature, but being a creator is this. He should not lie. I'm not a human that I should lie. And then there's another important term for you, and that is, Or repent. I'm not like you. I should not lie. I don't repent. Because I'm not like you. I don't experience space and time. Like you. I'm not subject to it. Like you. I don't make a choice in time. Subject to time, look back on that decision in time at a later time and have sorrow or regret over what I did. God is eternal. Another t- one other text, um, I have three other texts in summary form, but Psalm 102, 26 and 27, if you wish to jot that down. Again, answering the question, does God change? Does he indeed repent over his actions, his will? 
Psalms, or Psalm 102, 26 and 27, if you look there, the psalmist declares, everything changes. Everything is subject to change. Seasons come, seasons go. Our all, all of our lives are subject to change. But then he anchors the contrast between the creature, you and I, to the creator is this. He ever remains himself. He ever remains himself. You and I change. We undergo change. We feel the pain of getting older. Slowly but surely, feel the excitement at some ages of getting older. There's a whole range of experience related to age. And all of that is due to change. That's how we experience age. That's how we are hopeful regarding age. That's how we're sorrowful over age. Because we change and are subject to change. All things change, he says. But you, that is God, you remain ever yourself. Explicitly, perhaps the most explicit statement that we could just simply just say here, if we look at this text, we have to square everything that we're doing, the web of ideas that we're sowing. We have to square it with this text. If we were to say of ourselves, I'm going to receive an idea that God indeed does repent, the same as I do, that he is filled with sorrow over himself as I am with myself. It is more relational for me. We must at least square it with Malachi 3.6. In the prophet Malachi 3.6, God declares this, quote, I am the Lord. I change not. Perhaps most explicit and indeed, I hope, persuasive when we consider the definition of God, I am the Lord, I change not. Finally, the last text to consider, just in a brief summary, to see indeed if a classical treatment of the definition of God withstands the text of Genesis 6, or if we need to make adjustments based on what we read here in Genesis 6, is James chapter 1, verse 17. Many of you are familiar with this text. I'll read it for you, beginning in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down to us from the Father of lights. Now, notice he uses language of Father of lights. So so the imagery in your mind is a constellation. And then, the, and then the, the, the distance that good gifts come to us in this providential life by these providential gifts, their origin is in the Father. They come down to us. And he is a Father of lights, this constellation experience. What does it tell us about him in this constellation? What is unique about the Father? He says this, with whom there is no variation. His constellation, that is, the Father, forever remains the same. There is no variation. And then he adds to that another picture of the constellation. There's no shadow cast upon him due to change. 
James summarizes well that God is forever steady. He is without variable. Then consider those texts all together. If we were to be asked, is God, the God of Holy Scripture, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, is God without change? We would have to say, yes. He is indeed without change. And think of it just for a moment in these terms. How could we ground it? I think the psalmist has it well. Same with James, who declares there's no variable in him. There's no shadowy things where a shadow can cast him in a different light. He doesn't change. Why is it so bad if he does change? Because, remember, as it is with all of us, All that changes, as you see, all that undergoes change ceases to be what it once was. If we just took a few moments and thought about that, and then we questioned our faith and where it anchors, in the rock of ages, as he's, as he's so uh, uh, poetically described in the hymns. This, this rock of ages. But, but then we think, how can he be a rock for me? For if there is variation within him, that means he is undergoing change. And if he does change, he ceases to be what he once was. And that means also he changes in relation to me. But as scripture declares, true being, this is what we have to think on just for a moment. True being, in its absolute sense, belongs exclusively to him who does not change. That is described for us in the promise. Uh, if you were to go to Hebrews 13, we don't have time to go there. So, but, but, but if we were in Hebrews 13, it's, it's a beautiful statement where, where it says, what can man do to me? Right? What, 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 what can my fellow human beings do to me? I, and then he describes this, this beautiful promise that I possess as a pilgrim on the way. I possess this wonderful promise that is given me of the Lord. He will never leave me or forsake me. How can he shore up that promise? How can he anchor that promise to me that fills my life with a measure of courage as I make my pilgrim's journey onward? How, how, can I, how does he bolster that promise to me? By declaring this to you, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So when he says to you, I will never leave you, I will not forsake you, you think, how good is that? How long will that last? I declared it today, and I'm the same yesterday, today. And forever. Just as the Nicene Creed described our Lord and Savior, God of God, light of light, very God of very.
God. Augustine, that is St. Augustine, fourth century, wrote this. It's very helpful to us. He says, quote, the essence of God. And then he describes, what do we mean by essence? The essence of God, by which he is what he is, the fabric. That is who he is, in essence. That, that is the essence of God. That, that is by which he is what he is. Remember, I am who I am. Augustine says, possesses nothing changeable. Neither in eternity, and this is wonderful, nor in truthfulness, nor in will. This is why we gather on Lord's Day, because we believe this. We believe he is truthful. And we believe with Augustine that that truthfulness possesses absolutely nothing changeable. He, he can't hold his hand out, and you try to slap it, and he yanks it away. It, it, there, there's no changeableness to the promises. They're, they're firmly grounded, not in an idea, in his essence. You see, think about it just for a moment. Think about it this way as a Christian whose faith terminates in Jesus Christ, God of God, very God of very God, light of light. Think about it like this in your relation to him. If God can change, so let's, let's, so let's just turn the scope of the examination a little bit different. And, and let's open up to the possibility. And, and what does that do to a believer? To open up to the possibility, if God can change, have you thought of it this way? Then there is potential in his being. Potential means there is indeed also improvement to be had in who he is. How would we be sure that he indeed improves in his justice rightly? You see, if there is potential in his being, there is improvement that is possible for our God, then you must reconcile that he is therefore never perfect, but ever developing. He is never perfect because we have declared him changeable. Therefore, we leave categories that are maybe repressed, but they're categories of potential. They're ways of improvement. He's like you and like me. We could always be improving. We could always be getting better. There's always potential there. We are never quite perfect. So we would change the definition this way. We'd say God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and changeable. Ever improving and developing in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But again, holistically, Think with me, why does this matter that we get this so right? And maybe you're here this Lord's afternoon, we'll call it. And you're asking that very question. Why does he seem so intensely laboring over why we get this idea right? And I could say to you, and I won't for your sake, I could say to you a number of reasons. 
I'll try to narrow the scope to one that's singular and stands out for each of us. And that is, it matters holistically to us because it means that we as humans can wholly rely upon him. That, that, that's why it, it matters we get this right. In its most simplistic form, his immutability translates at the lowest hanging possible fruit that you can just walk by, pluck, and take a big bite out of without climbing the tree, without figuring out all the ins and the outs and which branches would sustain you and just how far out you can go in order to finally reach that peace. It's like walking by and the, the branch is like this and it's right here and there's a huge piece of fruit on it and I just go like this. It's this, the, 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 the lowest hanging, most accessible piece is simply this. It means we human beings can rely on him. And if you think that through on your own later throughout the course of the week, what immutability means to you, what the fact is that you rely upon him. Go through the categories in your life that you rely upon him for. You'll be overwhelmed of what you just assume. But think about it and itemize it. I rely on him for everything. And that's not a simplistic statement that it's like, well, that's overly simplistic. That's a broad brush. No, no, I'm saying you itemize it then and ask yourself, do I rely on him for this? And the answer will come back to you resoundingly, yes, I do. And I can rely on him for this. I'm not vulnerable on it. Why? Because he's immutable. He changes not. I change all the time, for better and for worse. You remain the same. Again, we recall that he does not change in his being, he does not change in his knowing, and he does not change in his willing. He eternally remains who he is. And I, I, I encourage you to, to drink it deeply that every change, and I mean every change, is foreign to him. In him there is no change in time, for he is eternal. There is no change in his location. He is omnipresent. There is no change in his essence. Why? Because he is pure being. So, if I were to give a summary statement of the biblical evidence, and again, it's simply a, 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 a 30 to, to 90 minute sermon, so I can't give you all of the evidence, but in a cursory fashion, what would I affirm so far? And, and you just have to receive from me that it's a fair treatment, and, and you can look it up later. At this point in time, you say, yeah, I'll, I'll grant you that for now. Great. Then the summary of scripture is this, God cannot regret he cannot repent, and he does not make mistakes. How then does that apply this afternoon to our text? Uh, I just have a couple more minutes with you. I won't tarry and keep going too long. I, but, but, but how do we, 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 the point of the examination of the biblical web of ideas is that we would summarize it, understand it, because that web of ideas, this text belongs to that web of ideas. How do we take this idea of God's immutability that he cannot repent, he cannot regret, and that that is my assurance? And then I see in the text, indeed, God made man, and he says, I repent that I made him. How then do I own this text 
in harmony. Look at verses 5 and 7. I'll read them for you and then we'll, we'll, we'll summarize how indeed we own them in harmony. Um, it, it says, uh, the Lord saw, verse 5, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every mention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And then, and then, it, and then it speaks of uh, the Lord's response where we are today. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. We just said he cannot be sorry But it says here the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth. And it grieved him. He had sorrow in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot man out whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals, creeping things, birds in the heavens. For I am sorry. Same term in verse 6. I am sorry. I regret that I have made them. But then the man Noah, of which we'll explore later, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There are two things to be considered here. The term that you're tracking, if you were to kind of get out a lexicon, you were to look up the Hebrew, or you're typing in the internet, and you were to Google the term, and then you kind of work your way through a lexicon, what you'd see is the term neham. And I say that in the real guttural sound, right? It sounds like real good Hebrew, but that's the term. There are two things that stand out to us considering neham. That is, number one, I want you to consider this terminology. Number one, the term neham is itself tricky in translation. That, that's not a, look over here as I do that. It's not, let me explain. It is translated a number of different ways. So if you take the term that says he is sorry, or he regrets, or he repents, and you say, okay, let, let's work this through. Let's take this piece out. Let's search it. Find out all the other uses in Scripture. And how is the term to be faithfully translated? Therefore, we arrive at a definition, and we read it back in the text and say, this is the meaning of this text. Again, the word is very, what we could say, tricky in translation. Why? Because if you were to look at a lexical definition of just this term, it could be translated this many ways. Quote, to be sorry, which is what we have here in the English Standard Version. I'm not sure the different versions in the crowd, uh, if you have NIV or the King James, New King James, what the ESV does is sorry. But it can be translated fairly to say to be sorry, to be consoled. To be moved to pity, to have compassion, to be comforted. Wow, that's wild. At one point, you can be sorry and you can be comforted. The last one in the lexicon is to say it can be translated to be relieved. What's the point in that? Well, if we were to look at the lexicon evidence, we see that the term itself has a very wide semantic range. We just, that, that's a given. So Naham has a wide semantic range. You could be in this moment, Naham, comforted. This is so wonderful. And you could be like, Naham, I'm angry. Both those things, you're like, well, how, how is that working? Right? The term has such a wild semantic range. Well, it belongs to a web of ideas wherein we find a faithful summary. So what does that mean then in translation work? Well, it at least means we do not have a direct English equivalent for the term Naham. We do not. It's not a one-for-one correspondence. In translation theory as well, you realize you come across a word and you're like, oh, Naham. You're like looking at this and you're saying this and you're like, oh, it simply means if I transliterate it out, R-E-P-E-N-T. It doesn't work like that. And we know that. So what we do have is an English, no direct English equivalent for Naham that covers the same semantic range. Number two, 
and I'll bring it back to why that matters. Number two, the second thing that we need to consider considering the term nacham is that the term consistently, this is something that's helpful to us in building an evidence, it consistently, where we find the term, describes the reaction of a person to an event. That's consistent. So, so we might not know what the reaction is based on the term, but we know there is a reaction to an event in the use of the term. The person is either then, based on the event, either brought to grief, brought to comfort, or the person desires to have compassion because of the event that they witness. In other words, we would say this regarding the term. It's something that happens outside of him or her. The event, so I want you to think of this. When you see the term nechem, you think that describes someone seeing an event and the impact that that event has upon them. Do you see? That's important. Because when we read then here in Genesis 6, that God repents... He exercises nechem. It is not that he repents of himself. Do you see? Or repents of his own actions. Or repents over his decrees. He repents over the event of man's wickedness. Do you see the difference? One is someone seeing an event... That is immoral. And they are grieved, repentant over this event. That's the visceral response to the event. Another way in which we might conceive of it is repenting of one's self in relation to the event. Or or repenting of one's own willing and desiring. This is not an achem. It's repenting consistently, no matter what we say about the term and where we translate it in context, it's about an event and the impact that event has upon the person. Again, what does that mean? If we read the text here, God is not repenting of himself. He is not repenting of his actions. He is not repenting of his own will. Rather, as one author writes, he says, quote, When God observes the tragic outworking of evil in Genesis 6. When God observes the tragic outworking of evil in Genesis 6. He is morally offended. And the word Nechem beautifully conveys this response. It's outside of him. And he repents of that. Not of himself for he is pure being he is not like you that he should lie or that he should repent he is not subject to time or decisions made in time he is beyond time why is this helpful and I'm going to conclude with you now here in the next moment why is this helpful or maybe we ask it this way what is helpful about all of this I say two principal things stand out why you should be helped, why I should be helped. What's helpful about this? Number one, what's helpful about the term Nacham being translated this way for me to read this text? Well, number one, 
God uses language and emotions common to the human experience to accommodate our creatureliness. Why should I be helped by any of this? Because it shows he's accommodating. Why is it helpful to know that he's accommodating? In other words, why is it helpful to know that he speaks in a way that I can understand? Because it proves that he desires a relationship with you. He wants to be known. He wants you to know him. He wants to condescendingly reveal himself to you. So thus he speaks in a manner that you can comprehend. He accommodates. He wants to be known. Secondly, by this accommodation, we learn a very important thing that each of us needs to come to grips with. Reading of this text and understanding what it means, by this accommodation, we come to learn that our sin truly offends him. It's not either here nor there if we live lives of debauchery. It's not neither here nor there if we just constantly trounce the moral law. He's not indifferent to our sin. He accommodates to us through language so as to reveal himself in relation and relation that we might be squared away rightly to him. I know him. I know something about him. He hates my sin. It offends him. Calvin then summarizes it this way. The repentance he is speaking of is to horrify us at ourselves. So where do we go from here? We flee to the gospel. Remember, God will not compromise, as we learn here in the text and we'll see in the flood event that comes. He will not compromise his holiness or his justice. Our sins offend him, as we read here, and they, they offend him enough that his only son, our Lord, died for them. Shall we go on sinning? Let us pray.